0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. Today, Karen concludes her discussion with professor and author Dr. Carol George on her work in developing the adult attachment projective picture system.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock for another great and exciting, I hope, episode of the podcast. Today's guest, I am absolutely thrilled to be able to introduce you to. And for those of you who are familiar with attachment research, her name is going to be very familiar to you. Today, I am gonna be interviewing Dr. Carol George, and we are gonna be talking about the AAP, which stands for the Adult Attachment Projective. But first, before she joins us, I want to give you some information about her really esteemed background. Dr. George uh, is a professor emerita of psychology and a distinguished research fellow at Mills College in Oakland, California, where she has co-directed for 21 years, the Mills College Infant Mental Health Program. Dr. George is an internationally renowned attachment expert and teaches courses and training in attachment theory and assessment. She received her doctorate in developmental psychology from the University of California at Berkeley in 1984. Dr. George developed the adult attachment interview with Drs. Bean and Kaplan. Before working with Dr. West, who she developed the adult attachment projective with, she also developed the attachment doll play assessment for children ages four to 12 and the caregiving interview for parents of children prenatal through age 12. The development and validation of these assessments helped her in terms of her development of the AAP or again, adult attachment projective. Dr. George has read, researched many aspects of attachment. She's written many research articles and book chapters on adult and child attachment in caregiving. Her books include the Adult Attachment Projective Picture System, which again is what we'll, we will be focusing on today, as well as books with others, including Attachment Disorganization, which was published in 1999, and Disorganized Attachment and Caregiving, which was published in 2011. In addition to all of this, she's the assistant editor and on the editorial board of Attachment and Human Development and director of the International Adult Attachment Projective Training Consortium. Dr. George does extensive clinical consultation, integrating attachment in treatment across the lifespan. Many of our listeners know how much I love the adult attachment interview and my own training and use of it. Uh, So this is got me kind of walking on cloud nine that we are going to be able to have Dr. George with us on the podcast today. So please stay tuned. Our interview will be coming right up.
0: Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chattuck, we have the experience and the longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. This July, the Knowledge Center at Chattuck launches the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience and a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, to join the waitlist for more information, or to sign up, visit TKCChattuck.org.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm Karen Doyle Buckwalter, your host here to continue my interview with Dr. Carol George about the Adult Attachment Projective. Dr. George, thank you for continuing this conversation. My pleasure. Yes. Well, the Adult Attachment Projective, we talked Quite a bit in our last episode about some of the other attachment-related assessments and measures that informed uh, your development of the AAP. I'd like to talk more, get into more specifics now about these seven pictures, and you know what they're uh, designed to do, and what you have found about the narrative that people give you about these pictures. And
2: whatever you could tell us, because I am just fascinated, okay, great. Um, and also please uh, jump in with specific questions. Uh, I might say as we start this second con- part of our conversation, yes, that uh, there is what I consider a pr- really nice description of the AP. You know, we write and things change over time. Uh, That appears in a a recent book that Everett Waters and his colleagues uh, published in 2021 on assessments in attachment. Um, And so I would recommend that uh, readers might start with that, since it summarizes a lot (laughs) of of other articles and papers that we have written. so the pictures, the history of the pictures was uh, just a little bit more of history. It was before my time. Uh, Malcolm West was working with his colleagues in Calgary, uh, and there, there were, there was the idea because he was um, in his lifetime trained in psychoanalysis and and uh, projected free response friendly um, to use stimuli to. Um, to elicit responses and this is also really popular in neurophysiological research with fMRI research um, t- in today's world and so there were more pictures i wish i could tell you which what they were but unfortunately when mac retired everything was left behind in his office in calgary and um, they, anything that happened before i came on the scene is irretrievable Uh, But I can tell you, as we have these seven pictures, they were drawn to depict attachment events. So for listeners who are familiar with the TAT, uh, the TAT are uh, very emotionally evocative stimuli, but there was not any particular... Uh, theoretical basis for why the TAT pictures were selected. In fact, I believe many of them were selected out of magazines that were appearing at the time of its development. So Mack and his colleagues went to great lengths to capture the fundamentals of attachment theory, which as far as John Bowlby was concerned, were um, stresses on or threats to the attachment relationship. So that would include being alone, Um, We have pictures, four pictures that capture individuals alone. Uh, A girl standing at a window, for example, or a a male figure standing at a cemetery headstone. Um, Loss is another topic yes. uh, separation which is my favorite john bolby volume if you haven't read separation six times then go back and reread it it's a <laughs> just it's so coherent and such a beautiful explication of separation and fear which he then used to launch the loss volume um, the, uh, the pictures also depict uh, relationships. So uh, potential uh, illness, which would be our ambulance picture, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, separation in the context of being with, a, with another person, which is our bed story. We know that children's bedtime. Um, yes. You know, they have monsters under the bed. Uh, it's a very scary time for young children. So the bed story evokes... Fabulous stories. Um, the The pictures were drawn to. So those are just examples of some of the pictures. Again, they are um, all of the pictures are shown in our book that we published in 2012 on the Adult Attachment Projective. People can see all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, The pictures were drawn to be ambiguous, which is really needed in a, a, a free response stimulus. Um, so there are no facial expressions. The line drawings are as ambiguous as you can get um, so that they can actually be responded to. They, they portray attachment across a lifespan. Uh, Bowlby talked about that. Ainsworth stressed that the attachment is a lifespan construct. So we have uh, children. Uh, all the way to uh, an adult sort of older, which most people in the world see as a grandmother figure in the ambulance. So we're trying to capture a wide range of not only contexts, but places along the lifespan where people have experienced uh, attachment.
1: Yeah, so these pictures um, are designed to activate the attachment system Parts exactly. of the attachment system related to like separation, solitude, fear, death, and then the lifespan component that you know Bob we talked about from the cradle to the grave, you know, this this matters. So wow, amazing.
2: And That's we amazing. They were ordered in a way that we thought was reasonable. <laughs> Based, Based on with define reasonable uh which means progressively risk. more
1: activating, is that it right? Yes. We, okay. we are
2: progressively more activating and uh as the strain situation is progressively more activating. Yes. It, it, we are grateful to our colleague Anna Wukheim at the University of Innsbruck, Austria, who actually subjected that that um, subjective assumption to examination using functional MRI uh-huh. and did find in her research uh, with typical clients that there were brain activation patterns over the course of the administration of the AEP that uh, actually demonstrated increasing uh, activation of distress. So thank you, Anna, for that. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's just just a side note. It's
1: just remarkable when Bowlby wrote about these things, how early he wrote about these things. And we continue to have hard science, such as the example you just gave, support these ideas that he had that just never ceases to amaze me. It's wonderful.
2: He was brilliant. He That's really I We really do have to read his books and the books of others as well. But yes, I, I used to teach a 15-week course at Mills College. I'm now retired uh, on attachment. And I was really proud of my students because, and I told them this, uh, because they were becoming some of the only people in the world, um, you know, a younger generation of people interested in attachment who were actually reading Bulby. Most people... Uh, read about attachment in secondary sources, which is just fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I just want to say that Bowlby continues for me to be a, a rich source of inspiration and explanation. Mm-hmm. We're, we're currently, we meaning uh, two other editors, Julie Wargo-Aikens and Melissa Lehman, uh, who are colleagues in training the AAP, are currently in production of uh, clinical applications of the AAP book. And there will be, uh, it's gotta be out, it's gotta be to the publisher in just a few months. Um, And so there will be, Uh, many new insights, I think, in that book uh, from Bowlby's work, including his perspective on mourning. But hopefully we'll have time to get to that. Um, You had wanted me to talk more about the pictures. So ask me a question.
1: Yeah. Well, so I think you did a great job describing some of the pictures. Um, So that was like very helpful. One of the things that I'm thinking about is something you alluded to earlier that I also think is interesting about this assessment is that it's not autobiographical. And so and the AAI is, and you know, we know that. You know, we, we have many play therapists, for example, that might be listening that know, you know, playing with puppets or, or something like that, that's yeah. sort of removed from your own experience for children can allow them to express things that um, more readily than if they had to talk about themselves. So it is interesting to me that these. You just tell a story about the picture. We're not asking about your childhood experience with your parents like we are in the AAI. So it's interesting to me how you can still come up with this correlate. Well, the correlate,
2: there there there's several levels of correlate. Um, The the main level that we were seeking originally, Mac and I, was to see if we could reproduce AAI classifications. Yes. Um, The the hit rate, as we call it, is not perfect, of course. And it never is in attachment research. It never is with humans. In fact, retest reliability shows that sometimes we change you know, over time. Yes. So what we see, we, we were able to do that in a, in a way that was empirically satisfying and demonstrated a strong uh, relation between the actual overall state of mind of the AAI and the overall state of mind of the AP. Some of the problem areas were that AAP, the AP is more trauma sensitive. So there were different manifestations often between the two measures where a person might be unresolved on the AAP and able to hang, hold it together uh, for reasons that I mentioned that people sometimes decide what they don't want to talk about. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're always going to be, and I love that. When, when they don't correspond, that's when I get really excited as well. And this is one of the reasons why Judith Solomon and I have been so successful in our work, is we want to know why things don't happen as well as why things do happen. So that's one area of correspondence. The other area of correspondence is as, as you're working with the AAP, you get a sense of which of the stories, which of the pictures are the person's real experience. It, it may not be all of them. In other words, it, it does activate an individual's own attachment experience and memories. But we're not looking for autobiographical convergence down to the level of what the story is, and is there a story in the person's AAI or, or clinical interview of any kind. Um, but there are going to be a couple, at least a couple, that you can say, and the clinicians have told me as well. And I can tell usually when I'm doing the analysis, this is this has got to be the, the client's story. Um, so, for example, I'm I, working on a, a book chapter. Uh, this person is severely traumatized. But she's confused about her trauma. And without going into her trauma, one of the things that she's confused about is uh, the dependability of her parent. So she tells, uh, particularly her father. So she tells a story to the very first stimulus, which is a child figure back to the observer, looking out, uh, was drawn to be uh, like a big picture window. And most people see it as that. Uh, and she tells a story about a girl standing at the window waiting for her father, that her father uh, had promised that he would come, but she knew in her heart that he would not. Mm. And the story elaborates a bit uh, about what what the girl hopes for and what the girl knows will happen Mm. and then at the very end which is the story of this client's life the girl says that she has to pretend that it's okay that cinches the story of her life Um, yes She is preoccupied, which is the adult equivalent of the ambivalent resistant child. She's also severely traumatized. Um, But those two ideas occurring in her mind at the same time while she tells that story really is the epitome of the ambivalent resistant baby in this strange situation. Yes. I know you're here. I'm reaching for you. I'm screaming. I'm so distressed, but I know that you can't comfort me. And so another parallel that we see is not just in, so maybe there are three parallels. Uh, another parallel I'll say is in explaining what's happening with a sto- in the story using the constructs of attachment, which is what I just did. Yes. story. And so when we engage in use of the attachment AAP, um, one of the processes that we use is to, we try to write a little script for what the story says, and then I write an attachment script. We teach our, our individuals who use the AP. Uh, once they get down the coding system, well, what does this mean when you translate it using attachment theory, which is what I just demonstrated in my example. Yes. So in that Mm -hmm. little bitty story that only took up about 10 lines, we got all of that. And of course, there are six more.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. It's it's just... Almost unbelievable uh, what you've been able to glean from this. One thing I was also noticing and reading about this measure is how you look at insecure versus secure. And you talked about coherency, of course. Right, okay, we, exactly. that's no surprise. Um, talking about agency of self, but you were talking about it in a, in a different way that I, I thought was quite helpful um, and connectedness and synchrony.
2: And so when, thing- when you're alone, I'll just jump yes. in. When yeah. you're alone and your attachment system is activated, the goal is to do something about it because you're alone. Uh, which we call the agency of capacity to act, uh, and that could uh, be constructive behavior of removing the distress or removing yourself constructively from the source of distress. Um, it also could be getting in contact with an attachment figure. Um, another goal. The, the maximal goal in order to establish rebalance is to repair, integrate. And so that form of agency uh, is demonstrated in the stories by thoughtful consideration about what's going on in the short amount of time. Uh, or an attachment figure stepping in and after you've reached, or maybe the attachment figure didn't even need a signal, notice that you were distressed and providing comfort. So that's our agency, and that is coded on the alone pictures, a very important aspect of self. uh, Both from uh, there's developmental evidence for that, and also it's a topic in psychoanalytic theory. Um, The connectedness idea says that when you're alone, do you have a representation of being connected to other people? that you can talk about, that you can specify. Uh, Biology tells us who those people should be when we are the most distressed. They should be our attachment figures, our friends, our our peer system, or perhaps our sexual partners. So we evaluate the story for whether those individuals are involved in the connection, uh, whether other people like the neighbor, who is not part of our biology necessarily, but who can be a nice person, uh, is involved, uh, or, or just somebody. Yes. <laughs> anybody, yes. Yes. Or whether the the person, the character, is alone. Mm-hmm. So those two uh, evaluations uh, are for the the alone pictures. For the pictures that portray potential attachment dyads together that we call those the dyadic pictures. Yes. We want to see if the representation of attachment can portray something along the lines of either, John Bowlby talked about two features that were important to relationships. Uh, one, which Ainsworth talked about was sensitivity to distress, and the other was mutual enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Do you have intimacy together? Mm-hmm. Um now the pictures tend to pull for more distressing stories than not, but every once in a while we get a fabulous story of mutual enjoyment. Um, and so that those are those dimensions that, that we've you listed and I described are called the content coding. And then of course we code defensive processes for all of the um, the pictures. And one of the defensive processes is the segregated system, so that we can actually see. It's kind of like a black hole in a way. Can you see evidence of the trauma? Uh, And those individuals who name the trauma, and not everybody who has had trauma names it, but they're more likely to name it in the AP than they are in the AEI. Um, I only know about what I've said formally based on uh, clinicians' reports, that some people still kind of can package it up. But those people who are not able to, to uh, either integrate or contain their trauma are the people who are put in the unresolved group. Now, one of the things that we've done in the AP that will be, I uh, uh, imagine, a prominent feature. There's the dog again. Shut up. Uh, of the new the new book is Bowlby talked about different kinds of mourning and Mary Main and others who followed her with the AEI have only captured one type of mourning which she has termed unresolved. John Bowlby never used that word. Uh, and I find it interesting that unresolved attachment, the way that we define it in the field, again, through the AEI, does not correspond with uh, the measures that people in the field of mourning use to uh, to measure whether a person has completed mourning or not. Uh, but Bulwys was interested in uh, three kinds, uh, three type, two types of mourning. One of which has two categories. Uh, one type, the one su- overarching category is chronic mourning, unresolved. As part of that, the other is something called preoccupied with personal suffering, which is a state of mind that. Uh, describes a person's hypervigilance and and preoccupation. Uh, It's almost like a PTSD state. The world is dangerous, and this is how I I see my world. But they have not completed the process of mourning trauma. So that's chronic mourning, preoccupied with personal suffering and unresolved. Another form, which again has not received any attention in the field, except I can only find two papers, (laughs) Mm -hmm. one by uh, Avi Sagi Schwartz and one by Howard Steele, I believe, uh, is the failure to mourn, the failure to initiate the mourning process, which we call failure to mourn or failed mourning. And so uh, I have developed a way of identifying those three particular forms of of mourning that are not complete, incomplete mourning, using the AP. Uh, And I'm really excited about that. And that's what a lot of this book is going to be about. And then recently... Judith Solomon and I struck out on a new collaborative uh, endeavor to uh, evaluate and identify and examine shame in the AP. Okay. okay. We just published a paper uh, okay. in a clinical journal called Attachment, which comes out of England. Uh, using the AAP, particularly using the most distressing story in the AAP where shame is more likely to be evidenced than any of the other pictures. It's called child in the corner and the child is literally cornered. Mm -hmm. Uh, And often those stories are about uh, parental responses, adult responses, parental responses to misbehavior, um, where parents normally can shame children as part of our socialization, but we were Mm -hmm. a uh, techniques in in all cultures, actually. But we uh, developed a system to try to differentiate, and this is very new and it needs a lot of work, but to try to differentiate what we call normative shame situations and uh, shame situations that may lead to what we call in the field toxic shame. So, so these are very- two new
1: wrinkles in the AP. Yeah. And that's intriguing and important work for sure. Looking at those, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that our listeners are have their curiosity really peaked about how they might use this in clinical practice because a lot of our listeners are in clinical practice. So what... What would individuals have to do to learn how to use the adult attachment projective? And um, what would that process be? And where could they find it? I'd like you to be able to share that before we wrap up today.
2: Perfect. Um, So we have a website. It's called attachmentprojective.com. It's not AAP. That was taken by the American uh, Association of Pediatricians. So (laughs) attachmentprojective.com. And uh, I don't know if you have written materials for your listeners, but they could write it down or you could write mm-hmm. it down for them. Mm-hmm. And it describes uh, everything that's available to date uh, using the AAP. And, and the most important piece of that uh, website in response to your question is the training. So there are trainings. The trainings are done all online. Okay. Um, and we were doing that well before COVID because we do trainings internationally and this uh, alleviated people having to travel and yes. the expense. Um, the trainings uh take about there are about eight sessions i we start with a uh, day-long session introducing attachment theory from a somewhat different perspective so that even though individuals who are well versed in attachment theory like yourself uh would enjoy i think and learn from the perspective that i use to uh do what we call the day one the intro okay and we teach the coding system and the classification of the AP. We give all the materials. Everything is included in the price of training. Um, and then uh, one, one of my reactions to AI training, I think, is that we'd like to continue to have people learn once they finish the session. And so we give people about 30 practice cases and the answers so that they can mentor themselves through more cases because. There are more stories out there. I say never say never. You're going to see a different kind of story. Yes. And then they engage in a reliability process, which they've paid for in their training. Uh, the process for some takes three months. For others, it takes a year, depending upon their schedule and how much time that they can invest in the process. Uh, they get a reliability certificate, and then they are able to use the AP. Uh, and consult with us we very're very, we're very um, liberal in our consultation we enjoy consulting with people uh, about their Aaps one of the, the things that we ask people to do is not code aaps for other people because what we do in reliability is get a convergence on the classification but we don't check all the codes and you can kind of get the right answer sometimes for the wrong reason so to speak yes. so if one want and that and that, works usually fine in your own clinical practice. But if one wants to enter the world of, of doing this for others, we ask people to become a master judge. Uh, and some of those people will become a trainer, but most of them just decide to become a master judge, uh, where, it, where we know that everything that is coded is is really in line with um, the people who invented this measure. Um, the other thing that we have been doing recently, I have of uh, three, four consultation groups where we invite people who have completed training. You don't have to be a reliable judge to uh, engage with a group of about three other people. So they're usually five of us, sometimes they're four of us. Bring your AAP. We all code it together again to practice. I guess I'm still a professor in that way, <laughs> to, to practice our coding, but then it raises uh, lots of questions about the client and how the coding system is is providing a window to that client. Yes. Part, those consultation sessions are two hours, and part of that time is uh, dedicated to the clinician on the hot seat, so to speak, uh, to ask questions and to pick our brain about understanding the client, what would we consider would be the appropriate attachment-based interventions to do next. I mean, it, it just opens up wonderful discussions with, with great minds. I find that the people who are part of the groups and, and in fact, people who come to our training uh, are some of the most vibrant, um, just f- wanting to share, wanting to learn individuals that I've ever met, actually. So I'm grateful to them as well.
1: Yes. Well, thank you so much. So listeners, just to make sure you have it, that's attachmentprojective.com. If you want to dig deeper, there are books and articles, which I also introduced at the beginning of the podcast. And you could also go to this website to find out about training. So Dr. George, thank you so much for being here with us today and having such a beautiful discussion about not only the AAP, but just some of the history of attachment theory. It's really been wonderful. Great.
2: Thank you. And I'm accessible by email. My email's on the uh, website and um, I welcome people to email me and reach out. If you have questions or thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for today.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.